Welcome back, and thanks for listening to this edition of ASAP's So What? The Skeptics Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Alexis LaPietra, who is the Medical Director for Pain Management in the Emergency Department at St. Joseph's in Patterson, New Jersey. This is the famous opioid-free or sort of opioid-free emergency department that we've heard so much about, and we will be discussing some alternative ways of dealing with pain. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we always start these out with a case, and so we'll try and do that. One of the residents comes to you and has that typical back pain patient who is having quite a bit of back pain. Uh, it seems to be musculoskeletal. We've kind of ruled out those big and bad causes. There's a palpable knot in the patient's shoulder, you know, right around Terry's minor, you know, where they say, you know, gosh, every time I move my shoulder back, it really kind of hurts. And the resident says, yeah, you know, I'm just going to get a little marking and shoot that puppy up. What do you think? You going to let him, not let him? Oh, I'm going to let them and they're going to get a high five and maybe a drink. That is a good resident. <laughs> Uh, what they're identifying is a trigger point, and if you can find a trigger point on a patient, you are really going to be able to get them exquisite pain management with just a tiny little injection. So as you were saying, people who come in with back pain or musculoskeletal pain, you want to try and see if you can find a spot that's really tender, nodule or a top band, and if you can push on that spot and fully reproduce their pain, then you have what's called a trigger point and you should inject it. All of the studies on trigger points show that anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, stretching, nothing really works as well as just putting a tiny little needle in that knot. So when you find that spot, pinch the spot in between your fingers and you want to use a 21 or 25 gauge needle depending on how big the muscle is, how deep it is, and you want to put that little needle into the knot. You may even have the muscle twitch and that's pathognomonic for a trigger point. That's great, that means you're in the right spot. If it doesn't twitch, that's still good, go for it. But it's the only way to mechanically inactivate the trigger point. You wanna move your needle in and out of the skin. Don't come all the way out, but bring the needle almost all the way out and redirect. And you wanna to try to put that needle into all four quadrants of the trigger point to just break it up. And at the end, or at each different site where you are, you can give a little local anesthetic. I try to tell people just focus on getting into that knot and breaking it up. When you're done, put one to two cc's of lidocaine or marcaine or whatever you have, and that just washes away post-injection soreness. It actually does nothing for the trigger point. It's the needle that you need to inactivate the trigger point. The studies show that the lidocaine or ropivacaine or marcaine just reduces the pain of you stabbing them so you've resolved their trigger point, but then you stab them so it's a little painful. So get rid of that post-injection soreness with the lidocaine. Pop a Band-Aid on, tell them to stretch, move around, and they're probably gonna hug you, whether you want to be hugged or not, because they're gonna feel a lot better. And it is so easy, and it works so well. That's actually surprising, because I've done trigger points myself, and heck, I'm now wanting to find you a 25-gauge needle, because my back is killing me. We're recording this live at ASAP 17, if you can't hear the background noise, and it's been a whole long week already. But I had always assumed that it was the marking. I've just gotten lucky that I've been fanning it around so that I've been breaking this up. So then, do we know mechanically what that's doing? What the needle is doing mechanically? Yeah. It's breaking up the spasm. So the spasm is so tiny. We flood the body with systemic analgesics to get a one centimeter area of super spasmy muscle. 
So it's not going to work. Nothing works. So when you have a corneal abrasion and you, you know, your eyeballs falling out and you want to give opiates because it's so painful, we know the opiates don't really work for that thin little layer of relatively avascular cornea. So we're trying to kind of sink the cork with the sledgehammer when we're doing systemic stuff. You need to put the tiny needle in the tiny spasm and physically break up the knot. So the marcaine and the lidocaine is the icing on your trigger point cake, but you need the needle to be in that spot and break up that nagging, nasty little thing. Is there a limit to how many of these you can do in somebody? I mean, we'll get some people that'll come in and there will be multiple spots. I mean, somebody will have a sore back and you, you you can identify two or three muscle knots. Do you have a limit to how many you'll do in one person? There is no limit, Howie. Uh, remember, this is a procedure, and you're going to get reimbursed for this procedure because it takes time. you got to get your equipment, and you are doing a skill that requires expertise. So the rule of thumb is you don't want to inject more than three spots per muscle group. You can be reimbursed one to two spots per muscle is one CPT code, and if you do more than three, it's another. So I don't recommend going above three, but you are going to be reimbursed accordingly. If you're palpating their back and you feel one in the trap and in the thoracic paraspinal and the lumbar paraspinal, go for it. Three different procedures, you reimburse for three different procedures. So there's really not a downside. If you feel these knots, it's the only thing that's gonna work. If the patient will work with you and they're okay with three needles, you're gonna do them a huge service by resolving this problem for them right there. One of the other questions that I have about this and and I, I can imagine some others do too is, When you get down to the lumbar spine, and especially when you get near the SI joints, is it okay to be injecting like over them or do we really want to stay into the thicker muscles? I mean, SI pain is fairly common. And if you've ruled out the pelvic insufficiency fracture or, you know, any kind of a skeletal issue, do you inject over there and does it work as well? Or is it more the bone that's causing the pain there? Again, the key to the success of a trigger point injection is finding a muscular trigger point. So if you're palpating a back and you're pushing on what you believe to be the SI joint and there's no muscular knot over it and you feel like you're just really on the bone and the joint, then that is not really a trigger point. That's a pseudo SI joint injection that should be done under fluoro sterile by a pain guy or girl. But if you can find a muscular knot and it happens to be over the SI joint, but you're confident you feel muscle there that's really tight, then pinch the trigger point in between your fingers. Elevate it above some of those structures that are concerning to you and be sure that the depth of your needle stays superficial. So the success of your trigger point depends on you feeling like you have found a knot or muscular spasm. Does it work for tibial band issues too or... If you can find a muscular knot, Howie, and you're convinced it's a nodule or taut band, go for it. Not much downside. All right. And the key really being we don't have to be injecting a lot. It's more moving a needle around and making that muscle stop spasming. I will say that you cannot bill for a trigger point unless you've injected something. For emergency medicine, they want to know you've injected something. And all the studies show the best injectate is local anesthetic. So the needle is very important to break up the spasm. But go ahead and give them a little injection. It's not bad. And that means you can bill for your procedure. Fair enough. That seems fairly reasonable. Now, one of the other tools that you guys have available and is near and dear to my heart because we had this when I was a medic. And I've suddenly not been allowed to use it anymore 
is nitrous. Now, nitrous oxide, and all jokes aside, you know, everyone in their whippets and the tanks at the raves. I mean, you're young. I, I Back in the, the 80s, that was the thing, okay? I mean, in high school, I can remember balloons that were filled up with something other than helium or air. But nitrous really is an effective analgesic force. What's the hang-up? I mean, why isn't this stuff as widespread as it used to be? So, like you were mentioning, it got a bad rap. So we've been using it for centuries. And then some feisty docs uh, discovered that we've got this really cool drug that was probably not as secured as it should have been in our emergency departments. And people started huffing nitrous. So it lost favor because it was not as protected. It didn't have special FDA approved systems that it was being delivered in. And it became a drug of abuse. So it fell out of favor. And then we got cool stuff like fentanyl and we got ketamine, which, you know, made a resurgence. So we had some other tools and I think we forgot about nitrous. It got a bad rap from abuse. But nitrous is awesome. It's a tasteless, colorless gas. It is a fantastic analgesic and anxiolytic. And anxiolysis is a big part of pain management, especially in peds, but also in adults. And what we have is a mobile delivery system. So it's locked in our trauma bay. You have to get a breathing circuit out of the omni-cell. So you've got to go into your trauma bay under the camera. You've got to get a breathing circuit out of the omni-cell. And then you bring it into the room and it plugs into wall suction as the scavenging system and wall oxygen. So this may sound cumbersome, but it's safety. This allows us to use this machine medically, but also have some safety around it to discourage abuse and to make it a little bit cozier for legal and pharmacy and everybody. But the studies have shown it's equivalent to a couple of milligrams of intramuscular morphine. The effects can be reversed with Narcan. So we know it is a good analgesic and there's not really a down Downside. What about the pregnant woman or the potential teratogenic effects? Do you guys always get pregnancy tests before you're going to use it? And I mean, is there any truth to that? Or is that just one of these theoretical one in a billion risk type of things? The studies on spontaneous first trimester abortion and infertility come from dental hygienists. So when they looked at issues with fertility and spontaneous abortion in dental hygienists, the conclusion was they had a high exposure to nitrous oxide on a daily basis as part of their occupation. And there was a link with vitamin B12 synthesis and neurotoxicity in the developing fetus. So for first and second trimester pregnancy, you do not use it. Go with something else. We don't want to risk it. And there's literature out there that something funky may be going on when you're chronically exposed to it. So we don't want to have any part of that. But for third trimester pregnancy, it's wonderful. They actually use it. It's a ubiquitous labor and delivery medication in the United Kingdom. You actually get a TENS unit strapped to your back, you get a little nitrous, and you somewhat enjoy your labor. So for third trimester pregnancy, when we feel like we're up against the wall with how to sedate or how to provide analgesia to this group, nitrous oxide is a go-to for third trimester pregnancy. That right there is kind of a great reason that we ought to be fighting for this in our community EDs because that is such a painful group, if you'll pardon the pun, to try and do things on, whether it's putting a shoulder back in, whether it's an abscess or any of these things which are detrimental to baby. I've actually had one or two bad biliary colics that are not going to go to the OR. They're not deeply infected. You know, the gallbladder wall is thin, but they're having classic gallbladder pain. And how nice would it be to hook them up to nitrous, get them past the way 
waves of pain, get them calmed down and get them there. But going back to the drug of abuse a bit, because I, I mean, I think it's something to, to, you're talking about if you do have teenagers or young adults or maybe even older adults who have and are recreationally using nitrous, is there a downside in terms of giving it to them is there you know do we worry about methemoglobinemia do we worry about any of these things that can happen from real heavy long-term use that we're going to add to it if we give it to them in the emergency department the studies on polyneuropathies and b12 deficiencies and folic acid deficiencies it's well documented that chronic abusers do have these issues there are lots of case reports of teenagers who end up with terrible neurologic deficits from this chronic abuse so you do have to screen. I don't know if they will disclose to you that they use it. Pretty much your 15 to 30 minutes of exposure in the emergency department is not going to make or break the chronic user's neurologic system. If they're using daily and they're using excessively recreationally, they're going to start having some red flags. A single 15 to 30 minute exposure you know, one in a million that it's the straw that broke the camel's back. But if you're in an area where you know that there's an issue or you have patients who come in with histories of the abuse, then I would include that in your screening questions. Some of the other patients we don't want to use it in is anybody who has a trapped gas, pneumothorax, small bowel obstruction, recent eye surgery, otitis media. So you do want to familiarize yourself with contraindications and side effects, but they are few and generally the medication is well tolerated. Now, you brought up otitis media. Otitis is kind of one of the banes of existence, right? Because you can have three people look at that ear and come up with three different opinions, and none of them is probably right. Let's simplify this. If you got a kid who's pulling at their ear, screaming about their ear, or in your screening, mom says he's on amoxicillin. Well, why? Oh, he had an ear infection. Move along. You can take a look in the ear and it's your clinical gestalt, your years of training and your board certification and you make a call. The worst thing that will happen is you rupture their eardrum and their tympanic membrane perfs. Now we see that all the time with otitis media. Some will say, gosh, that kind of took care of it. So I'm not advocating for nitrous oxide for the perforation of the TM for your otitis, but that's gonna be the problem. If you have an active otitis that's not being treated or the kid's not telling you and the eardrum happens to perf, then you deal with that. Just like when we give a little bit too much opiates when we're not using our alternatives and the patient stops breathing, we deal with that. So the side effect is not catastrophic. Include it in your screening. Take a look in the ear if you're concerned, and you just make a clinical decision. Awesome. Well, yeah, I got to tell you, I've seen some horrid fractures and some horrid traumas. As a medic that we dealt with, we used to have these little portable tanks, and it was a 50-50 mix self-administered by the patient. We didn't have a scavenger system. It was a, almost a CPAP-like thing. You know, they had to do an inhalation in order to activate the circuit. Now they'd breathe in a straight 50-50 mix. You know, the downside was one of the places that I worked, they broke into the uh, EMS chief's office and found 25 empty tanks under his desk, which was only brought to our attention after the industrial gas place we got it from. Kind of said, why are you guys going through so much nitrous? And it kind of became obvious that there was a problem. But outside of the abuse, I mean, it really didn't sound like there's much in the way of downsides here. Are there age issues? There's no age restriction, zero to whenever God takes them home. I'd say money and finances. Your administration may not be behind it, and the tanks and the mobile devices, well, the mobile device can be a couple thousand, six thousand, eight thousand. So that's an upfront investment. 
and we don't have a billing code in medicine for the administration of nitrous. It gets bundled for anesthesia, it gets bundled for dental. So we don't have a specific billing code and we're not really able to reimburse for the use of nitrous. So there's an upfront cost to get the device. And then maybe administration doesn't appreciate that there's not a financial return. But what there is, is there's an elevation in your pain management, there's decreased procedural sedation, there's decreased use of opiate, decreased use of ancillary staff if you're not sedating, and increased patient satisfaction. When you have somebody who has multiple abscesses, you know, they come into the ER once or twice a month, you know them, they know you, and they just have issues with an abscess. We know the local anesthetic doesn't do a great job, we just apologize to them. We say, sorry, but this is what we have for you. Try not to scream too loud. I think that's unacceptable. Even if we're not getting reimbursed for that nitrous we're using, we, our patients deserve to have better treatment than that, especially when we have something that will provide it to them. So nitrous oxide is a bridge. It's an anxiolytic analgesic that bridges you in addition to your local anesthetic or a little bit of Motrin Tylenol and allows you to just provide better quality analgesia for patients who otherwise might not receive it if you didn't have the nitrous. Now, do you use it in combination with any other agents? I mean, I can imagine one of Ativan plus a little nitrous is going to be a huge hit. Likewise, Ket nitrous is a, it was a common street drug mixture. We can laugh about the street drug mixtures, but they sometimes guide us, right? I mean, I love Arrowhead. You get great ideas off of Arrowhead, right? Because they'll tell you this is what people are doing and this is the effects it has on their bodies. Do you guys ever use it in those combinations, like when you're heading towards a procedural sedation, like maybe go lighter, but halfway to procedural sedation and some nitrous? Our policy will state for sole analgesia with nitrous, you give nothing else that has any respiratory depression or sedative effect. So if we're gonna go for sole nitrous oxide, which means you need no NPO status, you need no IV, and you do not need a cardiac monitor, they will put a pulse ox on you because we're in the ER, we can do a pulse ox. But otherwise, you need nothing. No nurse at bedside, no monitoring, no IV, no MPO status. So if you're going to use it as a sole agent, there's so many benefits. Just use it as a sole agent, maybe with your local anesthetic. Once you start adding any opiate, benzodiazepine, you are now towing the line of sedation, conscious sedation, and then... You have to appreciate that the combination of any of those respiratory depressants or sedatives, you're going to start towing the line uh, with hypoxia, respiratory depression, and needing a procedural setup. So my rule of thumb is if somebody comes in healthy, non-geriatric, you can give them some opiates or sedatives up front, but you really want to allow yourself about an hour of time. You do not want to have that morphine, fentanyl, or Ativan hitting them when they're breathing that nitrous at the same time because that is really a combination sedation and you're going to get into trouble. But what if you're intentionally going to sedate? Like if I'm going to sedate a kid, right, I'm going to say we've got a horrible leg fracture and the surgeon's coming in to put pins in for Buck's traction and then we're going to admit him. So there's no question I got to knock this kid down. There's plenty of moves for shoulders and others, but this some we're going to definitely want to sedate. I would imagine that if we use nitrous, we could use less of some of our other agents. I mean, do you find that an advantage or are you guys kind of saying, nah, you know what, there's not a reason not to give them full dose cat and just do it that way? No, this is a medication that you want to use in multimodal approach for sedation and it works wonderful. There's lots of studies that look at ketamine and midazolam versus nitrous plus hematoma block and the nitrous shines. 
Again, when you add anything to it, you're just getting better relief. So you want to use a little ketamine and nitrous, you're going to need less ketamine. If you want to use a little midazolam and nitrous, you're going to use less midazolam. And what's so nice about the nitrous is when you use it in combination, you know once you're done with the nitrous, then whatever else you use is all you have to worry about in terms of sedation status. If you give midazolam and it's in their system for an hour, fine. As soon as you turn off the nitrous, you don't have to worry about it anymore. So your sedation becomes a little bit easier to manage because you are using two agents, but one of which is out of the system in 60 seconds once you turn it off. Similar to propofol, you push it, you get an effect, and then it wears off. Nitrous is on in 30 seconds when you breathe it in, and it's out of your system in 30 seconds when you stop breathing it in. So it's a beautiful medication for sedation because it stops when you stop it. And then you have your other agent on board, which allows for smooth sailing with your sedation. Last question, and then I'll, I'll let you go here. There's been a lot of talk about using ketamine or even Ativan in some patients where you've got the severe asthmatics with a heavy anxiety component to it. We're giving the ketamine and putting them in CPAP because they tend to calm them down and allow the CPAP to work. Can you with the nitrous or is it going to be a little bit too much on the respiratory side? The nitrous systems are made, like you said, 50-50, 50 nitrous, 50 oxygen. A continuous flow, which is what we use in our ED, is a 70-30, 70 nitrous, 30 oxygen. Anybody who's sitting there in respiratory distress does not need nitrous oxide. You're getting your 30% FiO2, but I think we have better ways to manage it, and you cannot put the nitrous into the CPAP machine. So that's going to be a population where you do your regular business and you leave the nitrous for the other guys who don't need any uh, respiratory support. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is great stuff that you guys are doing. I'm jealous as hell about the nitrous. And thank you so much for uh, teaching me about the trigger points because I've done them, but I've done them wrong. Or at least I didn't understand what I was doing. So I appreciate you letting me know. If people want to get a hold of you, want to talk to you further about this, are you on social media? Are you an email kind of a gal? I'm like a six-year-old woman, maybe even older because my mom's 65 and she knows how to work Twitter. So much to everybody's chagrin, I'm not on Twitter, but you can certainly email me and I promise I I answer all my emails. It's L-A-P as in Peter, I-E, T as in Thomas, R-A, at S-J-H-M-C.org. And you can Google me and people find my email. I don't give it to them and they find me. So I am findable, just not specifically on Twitter. Not a problem. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can certainly go to the Facebook page for the show. Like us there if you haven't already. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at at Dr. Howie Mel. Or my email is howie.mel at gmail.com, H-O-W-I-E dot M-E-L-L at gmail.com. Best part about having your own podcast is you get the last word. So the last word on this one is we ought to be doing trigger points if you're not already. Simple, easy to do. You know, reimbursement aside, it's the right thing. And I, to be honest with you, I've done this with a lot of my patients. They get great relief and they're up and they're out and it's not a whole lot of pain and begging for the Dilaudid. It does take a cooperative patient. These are more the patients that you honestly don't believe are seeking and are working with you and you find that not. I've never known to just use it as the needle, but I'll tell you that my explanation to the nurses has always been you'll relieve the spasm by giving them a little Marcane. Yeah, it makes intuitive sense to folks and they'll support you and it works out really, really well. As far as nitrous, I think as we are looking towards responsible pain management, I think it's time for a comeback. I mean, to basically say that we are taking away an adjunct from our patients because of 
professional misbehavior is really doing a massive disservice to our patients and our population that we're serving. So I, I think it probably is time to start having those discussions, even in the community setting. In any event, thanks for listening. And remember, whether it's schadenfreude or saving lives, we've got the best jobs in the world. Have a great day, everyone.